You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. So I recently read two books that highlight what I think might be the greatest problem facing the church today. The first was a book called Anglican Identities. It was by Rowan Williams, and it was highlighting the diversity of Anglican theology throughout history and searching for a common Anglican ethos that sort of united all these different strands of thought. And I found some of the debates that historically happened and the different ways of thinking, the work of theology um, within the historic Anglican church, some of it was very fascinating. Some of it is amazing how much things that were written hundreds of years ago have bearing on our present circumstance today, the way that they thought about the organization of society and what that might mean, the way that the church uh, was moving through. These were all really great. But as you kind of moved up through the ages, one of the things that was happening with these theologians that Rowan Williams was highlighting is that when you get into some of the modern era, around the 1960s or so, you start to have people who the way that they are doing theology is to fundamentally reimagining the nature of God. Where they are questioning and asking, is God really a person? Is he someone who's out there that I could, that I could get to know? Is there like an objective reality of God? Or is God sort of the essence of being that sort of is around us and within us and within us all? And um, the way that these questions were being asked was troubling because it really was moving in a direction that it denied much of the historic Christian faith and what we have said about God, what we have said about Jesus. And more troubling than the existing, existence of somebody who denied the nature of God was the stance that Rowan Williams was taking, trying to to say, like, maybe we could hold this together in tension with these other traditional ways of understanding God. Maybe we could bring this all together. And it's especially troubling because at the time that he wrote the book, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Similar, I was reading a book on the history of Japanese theology. And it was actually written by several different people. um, And it was um, so they, they all had a, a little bit of a different perspective, but um, the history of Japanese theology is really not very long. When you're looking at the history of the Protestant church, and particularly in Japan, it's only a couple hundred years. And when you're looking at the, the older histories, I thought it was fascinating to see the personal nature of how the historic faith was handed from one person to another and the way that they influenced the church around them. And you could see the transmission of the way that we've understood the faith, and it was so important and so significant. And yet again, when you moved into the newer chapters, there were these theologians who were contemporary theologians who were writing, and they took a kind of pride in the novelty of some of Japanese theology, the ways that they were reimagining, again, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the way that they were able to bring in and, and connect Christianity with the ancient Shinto religion or Buddhism that was popular in Japan and find ways that they could, they could perhaps be the same thing or be tied together. And it was just troubling to see. And I have bad news and I have good news. The bad news is that this is heresy. 
that this is really, truly, among all of the cultural debates that we have around Christianity in our present age, the thing that comes through and strikes me as the very most significant thing is, are we willing to stand up and say who God is and who Jesus is? Are we willing to proclaim the historic Christian faith, or are we going to try to adapt it to try to fit our current culture to be palatable? Because if we do that, we are not doing what was entrusted to us. We are not carrying forth the faith that was entrusted to us, that was given to us by God, that was revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We are not doing the, fulfilling the charge that is given to us as followers of Christ. The good news is that this is really nothing new in the history of the church. The church has stood up under this from the very beginning. I was also looking back at some uh, church history book and was just reminded at how many different heresies sprang up in the early church. Almost all of them focused on the nature of who God is and on the nature of who Christ is. There's a bunch of isms that we go through. Um, there's docetism, which uh, is, means that Christ wasn't really, didn't really come in the flesh. He just seemed to. Um, he, he just, we maybe are looking at him and, and he seems to have a real body, but he's not really incarnate. He's not really with us. There's adoptionism, the idea that he wasn't, he didn't really become Christ until God decided that, well, this person, I'm going to make him the Christ. And that either happened at his birth or it happened at his baptism, but he wasn't somebody who was by nature God. It was just like a choice, like this is the one I'm going to pick and choose and I'll make him the Christ. There was Arianism, which was that Jesus was some sort of special creation who was given to us by God, but he was not existing with God from the very beginning. He was a special creation giving, given to us. And even further than that, you have Socianism, which was that Jesus was just an extraordinary man, which is really something that a lot of these theologians and contemporary ways of looking at Jesus want to say. that He was a great teacher, an extraordinary man, had lots of moral teachings. He lived and revealed to us what it is to be the Christ, what it is to be close to God, but he wasn't necessarily unique in his very being. And then, of course, you have Gnosticism, which set up this whole system of duality where this is this evil God versus the good God. And really, with Gnosticism, you end up with the evil God being the one who created the world because matter itself is bad. And really, we just want to escape matter, and we just want to all be purely spiritual. So Jesus had to come and show us that the fact that the good God, the God revealed in the Old Testament wasn't really the good God because he couldn't be because he was creating and creating is bad. And over and over again, you see all the things like this. And it's, it's almost too much to take in, too much to remember, too much to keep straight all these isms. The point is that there were heresies from the very beginning around the, the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, and that shaped scripture and the creeds. When you read the Bible with the backdrop of some of these things popping up as people are wrestling with understanding who Jesus was, you find many places where it's really clear that the Bible is trying to show us that these are not true where there is an outright condemnation of, of the proto-Gnosticism that was developing in the, in the first century, where it talks about the, the water and the blood flowing from Jesus' side to, to sort of take away any illusions that this was not a real body, a real man that died. You have the book of John, where we were this morning, that makes it very clear that Jesus was eternally pre-existent and deeply involved in the act of creation. And this also shaped the creeds. 
When we speak the Nicene Creed in our church every week, this creed wasn't just a collection of things that we thought it was good to say about Jesus. The way that these creeds were formed was actually the church coming together as a response to many of these heresies and saying, no, this is really the true faith. This is really what we believe together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. There's no split between the God who was the creator and the God who is in charge of spiritual things. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. These are speaking specifically against those who had a view of Jesus that was somehow less than one that acknowledged his eternal existence with the Father. And this is really at the heart of our scripture from John today. The question that is driving the book of John, the question that is engaging John the Baptist as he's beginning his ministry, the question that is on really the minds of everyone who is witness to these events is who is Jesus? Who is this man? And the Bible has this as a central theme, particularly in the Gospels, because this is absolutely fundamental to the question of our faith, to the nature of what it means to be a Christian, is who is Jesus? In John chapter 1, in the verses we read today, we kind of jump in in the middle of the story where there is John the Baptist. And... The setting here, as, as John tells it, is a little bit different than the way that it's told in the Synoptic Gospels. John is telling that, that John the Baptist, John, John the author of the Gospel, is not the same as John the Baptist. So I'm going to say the word John a lot here, but there's two different people in mind. Um, the Apostle John was writing about John the Baptist, and he says that he's a witness. He's someone who is pointing to the one who is going to come be after him, the one who is greater than him. And... Um, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, so the very first encounter we see with John saying anything, speaking, is not necessarily his call to repentance that is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Instead, we see the Pharisees coming up to him and saying, who are you? They want to make the question about who is John? What is his identity? Why does he have this ministry of baptizing in the wilderness? Why does he think that he can call people to repentance? Who does he think that he is? And John's answer, and this happens right before the verses that we read this morning, is fascinating. And that he basically deflects their question, largely. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make way the path for the Lord. But really what I'm doing is just pointing to the one who's going to come after me. You want to make this about my identity, but I am telling you that the fundamental question that is really going to be the one over which you will either rise or fall is what do you think of the one who comes after me? 
What is his identity? And then right after that, we have Jesus walk up to the scene in the scene where John is still out in the wilderness and it's not recording the moment of his baptism, which we talked about last week. Instead, it's after that sometime and John sees Jesus walk up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he says, This is the one who I was pointing to. In verse 34, he says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There are two things that John is revealing in these two statements. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and this is the Son of God. Two things that come right clear here at the very front of this gospel about the identity of Jesus. First, who is he? And second, what is his purpose? Both statements really speak to the identity of Jesus because you, really, you can't really talk about his identity without talking about his purpose. The two are intimately tied together. But I think the one that is perhaps the most significant marker of his identity is when John says, I've come to testify this is the Son of God. And there's a lot of questions in modern theology about what that means. But John's actually, the, the author John has anticipated those questions and he has drawn for us a picture of what it means when he says that Jesus is the Son of God in the earlier verses of John. He talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son of God is pre-existent with God from the very beginning. He is fundamentally God. He is God. Through him, all things were created, and every, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He's pointing to his instrumental role in the act of creation, that he is the very one through whom we find our being. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. We have God come down and he took on flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We see the emphasis that John places on making sure that we understand as he is writing his gospel, as we look at this and are trying to make sense of who Jesus is, that Jesus is by very nature God, but he has taken on flesh, real flesh, and he is among us. And the Baptist testifies to this. He says, this is the very Son of God. He also says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, pointing to his purpose among the people pointing to the reason that Jesus came. That he is the one who is holy and pure. That he is the one who is going to be the sacrifice to take away sins. He points to the deep need of humanity not to reach some sort of enlightened state, not to come and sort of make sense of the world through our philosophizing and our ability to, to comprehend new different ways of being 
What we need is someone to deal with the problem of sin that has made us so that we are separated from God, that we are not holy. And here is the one who is holy, the one who is pure. And in him, we can be made pure. Jesus is the eternal existence, Son of God, who has taken on real flesh and who has come so that we might be saved. This is what John's gospel is pointing to. This is what the historic Christian faith attests to. This is what the creeds are telling us when we say those creeds every single week. And no other answer will do. Any way that tries to make this more palatable, any version of the story that tries to make it easier to reconcile this with other religions and ways of being, any version that tries to, to take the way that we talk about things in a modern age and say we're done with myths and we're kind of past that stage of our development, we can understand this in a higher way now. Anything that does not proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is the one who has come to save us and there is no other way is false and a lie, and does absolutely no good to anyone. Cling to this. Cling to the true faith. There is no other way by which we come to salvation. And John is not some early human that hasn't developed enough and come to a modern understanding of the world and doesn't understand modern questions of epistemology and our, our way of understanding and knowing and being, he actually addresses some of that right here in this passage. He knows that one of the questions that you're going to ask is, well, that's fine to claim that, but how do you know? How can you be sure? And John points to at least three ways here in his passage as he's telling us that we can be sure. The first is personal experience, actually, that we have at times encounters where we, we understand Christ, where he's given us that vision of who he is. John is able to point and say, I was there when he was baptized. I myself didn't know him. I admit it, I didn't know it at first. But I bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John was a witness to something that happened, an event that he really was there and present for. He baptized hundreds of people, thousands of people, I don't know, it doesn't tell us. He went through many baptisms and once, one time, he saw the heaven opened up and the Holy Spirit descend upon a man and stay upon him. And he says, I saw it. I know. Within this, we also see another way that God reveals to us is that the work of the Holy Spirit himself points to the reality of who Jesus is. God himself gives us revelation that shows us who Jesus is. He testifies to himself. We pray and we ask because we know that none will come to understand truly who Jesus is without the work of the Holy Spirit opening their eyes. And people who think they can purely reason their way there will always find themselves in a trap. 
a way to get out and not see it. But there is a real encounter. There is a real work of God in this, drawing us back again and again to the reality that this is who Jesus is. I think there is a tendency for many to experience even the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the encounter of the Holy Spirit, testifying and saying who Jesus is, but denying it. But if we deny it in ourselves, we're also given the testimony of others. We're given testimony of those who are faithful witnesses. Right after this passage, John's disciples come and end up following Jesus. And they do so because John has said, this is the one. Somebody who they trust, somebody who they have followed, has pointed and said, this is the one. Do you not see him? And they take his word and they say, you know what? You're trustworthy. I can believe you and trust you. And on the evidence of what John says, they go and believe. We also, in the words that John uses, and even talking about the Lamb of God, in the ways that John goes out and is quoting the words of the Scriptures, actually, to the Pharisees when they ask him who he is, that I am the one who is to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare and make way the straight, the path of the Lord. We see in these comments that he's using Scripture itself to point to Jesus as well. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Gospels offer testimony to Jesus. The letters that are given to us point to the way that the church was formed and the ways that thought came out of that from what came out of the encounter with Jesus. And over and over to the Scripture, we have people, we have the testimony of God in our own lives, and we have our personal experience. All of these things point to the fact that Jesus is who He says He is. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. This is central to our faith. We never move beyond this. And it is the most pressing thing, I think, facing our church today, is will you hold on and cling to the true faith of the gospel in the face of those who want to reimagine what it might look like and make it more palatable? At the same time, many of the liberal theologians of the mid-20th century and beyond do offer some helpful criticisms and critiques of the church. They have ways, oftentimes, of pointing out that you can't just talk about what you believe. You have to look about how this plays out. What kind of action does it evoke? And when they point that out, they are not saying anything that is counter to Scripture. In this much, they are right that God does not just call us to intellectual belief and assent, that it is not just knowing the right things that is what matters. There's also this question of what will you do with that knowledge? What will you do with your encounter with Christ? What is your response going to be? And we see in this passage again several aspects of that response. In John... For John the Baptist, one of the very first things that happens with his encounter with Jesus is that he recognizes the need for a diminishment of his self. 
The Pharisees come to ask about who you are. And John could have answered, I am a prophet in the spirit of Elijah. I am like one of the ancient prophets, one of those for whom you tell the stories. I'm one of the people who proclaims the word of God to draw you to repentance. Look at me and my greatness in here and listen and obey. And instead, John's immediate response when they ask, who are you, is to say, I'm going to point to one who's beyond me, who's greater than me. When he sees Jesus, he says, this is the one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. (coughs) In other places in the gospel, it says I must become less so that he can become more. If we are clinging to ourself and making ourselves great, then our response to God is improper. This is part of what happens with those theologians who get off track. They want to tout how wonderful their minds are, how creative they can be. They want to look at at themselves and make themselves the centerpiece of what God is doing. And instead, the call for us as Christians is always, I must become less so that he can be more. course, one of the things that comes out of this that we see in John is that John's response to having this encounter, having seen who God is, is that he testifies. He tells the story of what God has done. He tells the story of who Jesus is. He is not ashamed to stand up and proclaim, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Son of God. And there is this call for all of us as well. If we've had this true encounter with Jesus, If we know who he is, if we believe him to be the Son of God, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one through whom all things were created, are you willing to say it? There was a movement in recent years, oftentimes, to say something along the lines of preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. And there's some truth to that, and that your life also reveals the way that you believe and think about God. But there's a sense in which oftentimes it can become sort of an excuse, an unwillingness to actually allow the word about Jesus to come to our lips. Um, We can become a preach the gospel at all times, the word only if somebody, by words only if somebody asks about it and really pesters us and really tries to get us to actually say something about Jesus. But otherwise, I'm just never going to mention him because I know that he's offensive to some people. I know that he's a stumbling block and I want to sort of hide behind that idea that I can just bring people through my actions. But John is out there certainly taking action, but he is testifying to what he has seen and what he has experienced. And that is absolutely essential for us as Christians. If we've had an encounter with the risen Lord, if we've had an encounter with Jesus, as we tell people about it. We see the response of the disciples very shortly afterward. We see one of the other key elements of what it means to, to actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is. They ask, where are you going? And he says, come with me. And they don't say, I didn't ask to come with you. I just wanted to know where you're staying. Just tell me about it. They obey immediately. They come and they follow after him. 
There is obedience that is necessary if we are going to be people who actually make a claim about who Jesus is. One of the things that we'll be looking at through the, the season of Epiphany is we will be looking and shifting over into Matthew next week, and we're going to get into the discussion of the Beatitudes and a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are hard things that are said there and are, that we are called to obey as Christians. But if we believe that Jesus is Lord and he is the Son of God, then we have no choice. We must obey his words. The disciples as well, in addition to coming when Jesus said, come, they stay with him. They seek to listen to him, to learn more about him. They don't say this one encounter is enough. They try to soak him up in all that they can. They try to learn more and grow more in their knowledge of him and their relationship with him. And this is also a call that is upon our lives. God will not use, I didn't know that Jesus said that, as an excuse for not obeying. He calls us to learn, to seek after what he says to know him more and more deeply. And if our lives don't reflect these things, I think it's just as much heresy as those academics who try to put themselves up and, and reimagine different ways of thinking about Jesus. Heresy is not just for those in the ivory tower. Or it's not just about wrong belief. There are the explicit heresies, the, the proclamations of things that are definitely untrue, but there's also ways of living in implicit heresy. Because our lives reflect what we actually believe. What we do shows the reality of our faith or not. So when we don't take sin seriously... Do we really believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world? Do you believe that he came to take away your sin? Do you believe it when he says, go and sin no more? That's a command that he gives to you. When we don't obey his word because it's unpleasant or we don't like it, are we really living as if he is Lord? As if that word came from the Son of God? Can you say that you believe that if you don't act on it? If we are ashamed of him, unwilling to speak the name of Jesus, unwilling to say what he said about himself. Do we really believe he is who he says he is? Do we believe it when he says, I will be with you? I will give you the words to speak. Don't worry about having the perfect plan ahead of time, just trust me. I'll tell you at the time. And we remake Jesus in our own image. 
We make him match our political stances, our particular issues that we like to talk about. We do so not because it's what he's revealed himself to be, but because we want Jesus to be just like us, to like the same people we like, to dislike the same people we like, dislike, to condemn those whom we condemn. Are we allowing him to be Lord and diminishing ourselves? Or are we putting ourselves as God and making him in our own image? What do we think? What do we say? What do we do? What does this tell us about our true belief in Jesus and who he is? Do we believe he is the very son of God? Do we believe that he is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world? We find a gap between our actions and what we claim to believe. The only path forward at that point is to obey Jesus himself again and to repent. To name our sin. To turn back to him. I have to do this far too often. It pains me at times to see what my life says about what I believe. I'm sure the same is true of you. But the good news is that he came for the forgiveness of sins. That he takes away the sins of the world. That he is just and merciful and good. That he calls us to repentance not just once, but over and over again. And he tells us that the mercy of God endures forever. And so we are able to take the yoke that he has given us to actually live into that diminishment of self. It is not always easy. One of the books we got our kids for Christmas was Little Pilgrim's Progress. And we just got through reading the page the other day where um, little Christian goes out and he's just been given the armor that he's received in the Palace Beautiful. And he goes out, and the first enemy that he comes across on his path that has a name is self. And self comes out and speaks and says, you know, when you were in the Palace Beautiful, you were telling about your story, about, about kind of where you'd come and how you'd gotten here, and you made it sound like you were really great, but you know how you are. You know what you actually have done. You know that you were not faithful, that you were not good. I saw the times that you strayed away, that you felt despair. And these are the fiery darts that he throws at him. And little Christian is wounded. He's hurt. He has the armor on, but his hands and his feet where he's not covered come away with wounds and blood. He thinks that he's defeated, actually, but he holds up the shield that is given to him. And he grabs the sword that is given to him. And he finds that self cannot stand even the slightest wound that is given by the sword that, that the king gave to him. It hurts at times to live in the diminishment of self. 
But we will find that if we use what the King has given us, if we take the words of Jesus and use them to push back, to, to, to make the claims, to remember who He really is, that He will see us through it. And it will add to the stories that we have so that we can testify faithfully about Jesus and who He is, that He is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we see the results of obedience, we will grow emboldened in our ability to obey. And we can be called to, like the disciples, sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn Jesus, to see who He is. This was one of the phrases in that book, Surprise the World, that many of you read earlier, I guess last year. We're asking how can we actually take on the call of sharing our faith in the world. And one of the things that we must do to do that well is to learn Jesus, to know who He is, to meditate on His life, to look at His words, to walk in obedience because we know Him. We should all be as bold as Buddy the Elf when he thinks he sees Santa Claus. And he goes, I know that guy! is the call that is upon us as the church. The call that we are to return to time and time again. The question that is at the very heart of our faith and that will never go away. Who is Jesus? Will you believe what is true? Will you cling to the historic faith that has been passed down? Will you accept the testimony of the scriptures? Will you believe rightly and will your life give proof of your obedience? And if we do that, if we follow after him faithfully, we will know more and more the wonder and the majesty, the goodness and the grace, the mercy the kindness, the strength, the love of our Lord. May you know Jesus deeply. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.